Chapter fourteen, part four of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume two, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter fourteen, part four. Section 4. The Battle of Mantinea While Thebes was intent on opposing Athens, now her only serious rival, she had kept aloof from the Peloponnesus. But the course of affairs there was soon to demand a new intervention. The interest now centred on the relations of Elis with Arcadia, and the decisive element in this situation is the rift in the Arcadian League, perceptibly widening every month. Her rights over Triphilia were the chief question of political importance for Elis. They had been recognized in the Persian rescript, but Arcadia refused to admit them and Thebes did not interfere. Thus Elis found herself in the same plight as Sparta in regard to the Arcadian League. It had always been a principle of Lacedaemonian policy to preserve against Elis the independence of her two southern neighbors, the Pisatans and the Triphilians. But now Sparta was only too ready to renounce this party and recognize the Ilian claim for the sake of winning an ally. It was in the nature of things that the two states should combine to recover Messenia and Triphilia. Thus there came to pass a change for the better in the prospect of Sparta. Enemies had risen up against Arcadia on the north and on the west, and Thebes held aloof. The Spartans had recently gained a welcome success in the recovery of Cilicia with the help of a force which had been sent to their aid by the second Dionysius of Syracuse. Besides Triphilia, there were certain places on the mountainous frontier between Elis and Arcadia to which Elis professed to have claims. One of these was Lacyon, in the high plateau of Pholoe, north-east of Olympia. The Elians occupied the district, but were speedily driven out by the pan-Arcadian Eparitoi, who were always ready for such emergencies. The plains of Elis were far more assailable than the highlands of Arcadia, and the Arcadians were able to carry the war to the very heart of their foe. The Olympian festival would fall next year, and they were resolved that it should not be celebrated under the time-honoured presidency of Elis. They marched to Olympia, and occupied and fortified the hill of Cronus, which looked down upon the Altis. Then they made an attack on the unwalled city of Elis in concert with the democratic faction. But the attempt at a revolution failed, and the Arcadians were repulsed. In the following year a second invasion reduced the Eleans to such distress that they implored Sparta to make a diversion and draw off the Arcadian forces. In answer to this prayer, Archidamus occupied Cromnon, a fort which commands the road from Megalopolis to Messenia with a garrison of two hundred men. The importance of this step is shown by the fact that not only did the Arcadians promptly leave Elis, but they were also joined by allies, Argives as well as Messenians, to besiege Cromnon. A Spartan post there cut off the communication between the Arcadian and the Messenian capitals, and was a threat to both. Archidamus at first tried to create a second diversion by ravaging northern Laconia, which was now politically part of Acadia. When this failed, he made an attempt to relieve Cromnon, but was driven back with some loss. A second attempt at rescue would have been successful if it had been concerted, but it led to the capture of almost the whole garrison, 
an event which ten years before would have sent a shock through the Hellenic world, but now seemed an ordinary occurrence. The Arcadians were again free to continue their designs in Elis. The time of the Olympian Games was approaching, and the people of Pisa, the ancient possessors of the sanctuary, who had by no means forgotten the rights which Elis had usurped in the days long gone by, were installed as presidents of the festival. It was fully expected that the feast would not pass without battle and bloodshed. The hill of Cronus had been occupied for a year by the Arcadian garrison, but now the whole army of the Federation, as well as two thousand spearmen from Argos and four hundred cavalry from Athens, arrived to protect the solemn celebration. The day came round and the games began. The horse-race was run and won. The next contest was the pentathlon, which demanded excellence in five different kinds of athletic prowess, in running, wrestling, hurling the javelin, throwing the disc, and leaping. The first event, the race, was over when the company became aware that the men of Elis were marching up to the bank of the Cladius, which bounded the western side of the Altis. The soldiers took up their position on the opposite bank, but the games went on. Those competitors who had not failed in the race proceeded to the wrestling, as the spectators, when the alarm was given, moved from the race-course into the Altis, to be nearer the scene of action, the wrestling-match was held in the open space between the race-course and the great altar, under the terrace of the treasure-houses. The Eleans, who were supported by an Achaean force, performed a sacrifice, and then, charging across the stream with unexpected boldness, drove back the Arcadian and Argive line into the Altis. A battle ensued in the southern part of the holy precinct, between the hall of council and the great temple of Zeus, but the colonnades of these and other adjacent buildings gave shelter and points of vantage to the defenders, and the Eleans, when their captain fell, retired across the stream to their camp. The Arcadians improvised a fortification on the western side of the Altis, using for this purpose the tents of the spectators, and the men of Elis, seeing that it would be useless to repeat their attack, returned home, obliged to content themselves with declaring the festival to be null and void, and marking the year in their register as an Olympiad. The religious sentiment of Greece was outraged by these violent scenes at a sanctuary which belonged to all Greece rather than to any single state, and there can be no question that the general sympathy, independently of all political considerations, was on the side of Elis, whose presidency was regarded in Hellas as part of the order of nature, and was strongly adverse to the Arcadian intruders supporting with arms the antiquated rites of Pisa. But it was far worse when the Arcadians began to make free use of the sacred treasures of Olympia for the purpose of paying the federal army. This was an act of sacrilegious spoliation which could not be defended, and it was disastrous to the Arcadian federation. It was inevitable that, when the first impulse of enthusiasm which drove the Arcadian cities to unite together had spent itself, the old jealousies would emerge again and imperil the pan-Arcadian idea. So it was that the two neighbours, Mantinea and Tegea, whose common action had been the chief cause of the Federal Union, began to resume something of their traditional enmity. The scandal of Olympia gave Mantinea, who was jealous of Megalopolis also, a fair opportunity to secede from the League, which had put itself so signally in the wrong. This step necessarily involved the consequence that Mantinea would definitely range herself with the other camp in the Peloponnesus, with Sparta, Elis, and Achaea, and thus the traditional policies of Mantinea and Tegea were reversed. Tegea, the support of Sparta, had become the life and soul of the anti-Spartan movement. Mantinea, 
the state which Sparta had uncitied, was now Sparta's support. Though the Arcadian assembly resented and tried to punish the protest of Mantinea, the pressure of public opinion induced it to forbid any further plundering of the Olympian sanctuaries. When this resolution was taken, the weakness of the Arcadian League was exhibited. There was no money in the federal treasury to pay the standing army, and without this army it would be impossible for Arcadia to maintain herself against enemies on three sides, not to speak of disaffected Mantinea, without the protection of Thebes. But there was a strong feeling throughout the country against a Theban protectorate, and a large number of wealthy Arcadians, who shared this feeling, proposed to solve the difficulty by enrolling themselves in the corps of Eparatoi and serving without pay. Occupying this position, they would be able to dictate the policy of the League. There was little doubt that the predominance of this party would soon bring Arcadia into alliance with Sparta, which was no longer dangerous to Arcadian liberty. But such a political revolution would be fatal to Theban influence, which rested on the antagonism between Arcadia and Sparta. It might even imperil the independence of Messenia. To meet this danger of an alliance between Sparta and Arcadia, Thebes was constrained to send a fourth expedition into the Peloponnese. It was imperative to support the Theban army in Arcadia. Both parties alike were probably satisfied with the resolution of the assembly to make peace with Elis and acknowledge her rights at Olympia. Each city swore to the peace. At Tegea, the solemnity of the oath led to an incident. Arcadians from other places had gathered together for the occasion which they celebrated by feast and merriment. The commander of the Boeotian garrison ordered the gates to be shut and arrested the leaders of the anti-Theban party. Most of the Mantineans present had left the town at an early hour, but there were a few among the prisoners, and the energetic protests of Mantinea frightened the faint-hearted Harmos into releasing all his prisoners and excusing his act by a false explanation. The coup had doubtless been planned long beforehand, and consent obtained from the highest quarter. Epaminondas, when complaint was made at Thebes, approved the act of arrest and condemned the act of release. At the same time he declared to the Arcadian League that it had no right to make peace with Elis without consulting Thebes. We will march into Arcadia, he said, and assist our friends. The threat was seriously meant, and the friends and enemies of Thebes prepared for war. Athens, an ally of both Sparta and Arcadia, could now fulfil without difficulty the double obligation by supporting those Arcadians who were on Sparta's side. The common dread of Thebes was reflected in the quintuple alliance which Athens, with her allies Mantinea, Elis, Achaea and Phylus, formed for the sake of mutual protection. Part of the text of this treaty is preserved to us on fragments of one of the original marble copies. It is worthy of remark that the Mantineans, who seem to have been the only Arcadian community that entirely dissociated itself from the government at Megalopolis, appear in the treaty as the Arcadians, thus claiming to be the true representatives of their country. The Boeotian force in its full strength, accompanied by all the allies of central Greece who were pledged to follow Thebes into the field, went forth under Epaminondas to bring back the unruly Peloponnesians under Boeotian control. The Phocians alone refused to go. The terms of the alliance which bound them to Boeotia obliged them to bear aid only if Boeotia were itself attacked. When he reached Nemea, Epaminondas halted his army, with the hope of intercepting the forces which Athens prepared to send to her allies. But the Athenian forces came not, and he advanced to Tegea, the chief centre of Theban influence in the peninsula, which he had appointed as the 
meeting-place for all his allies, Arcadian, Argive, and Messenian. His enemies were also gathering to the rival city at Mantinea. A Spartan army under old Agesilaus was expected there. Epaminondas marched to attack them before the Spartans and Athenians arrived, but found their position too strong and returned to his camp in Tegea. Learning that Agesilaus had already set out, he determined to strike a second blow at Sparta. He would have found the place as unprotected as a nest of young birds, if his plan had not been thwarted by a Cretan runner who carried the news to Agesilaus. The king immediately returned on his steps, and when Epaminondas, after a night's march, reached Sparta, he found it prepared and defended. Baffled in this project by an incalculable chance, Epaminondas promptly resolved to attempt another surprise. He foresaw that the army at Mantinea would immediately march to the west Sparta, and that Mantinea would consequently be inadequately guarded. His camp at Tegea commanded the direct road from Mantinea to Sparta, so that the enemy would be obliged to march by the longer western road. Moving rapidly, he reached Tegea, where he rested his hoplites, but he sent on his cavalry to surprise Mantinea. The army had departed, as he calculated, and the people were out in the fields, busy with the harvest. But in the same hour in which the Theban horse approached from the south, a body of Athenian cavalry had reached the city. They had not yet eaten or drunk, but they rode forth and drove the assailants back. The conflict between the two weary troops of horsemen was sharp, and was marked by the death of Gryllus, the son of Xenophon the historian. The allied army, learning that Sparta was no longer in danger, soon returned from its fruitless excursion to its former post, now reinforced by both the Spartan and the Athenian contingents. Foiled in his two projects of surprise, Epaminondas was obliged to attack the united enemy at Mantinea. The difficulty of supplying his army with provisions, and the anxiety of his allies to return home as soon as possible, rendered it imperative to bring the campaign to a swift decision. The enemy occupied the narrow part of the plain, south of Mantinea, where ridges of the opposite mountains approach each other. The object of Epaminondas was to sweep them out of his way and take the city. But instead of marching straight for the gap, he adopted a strategical movement which puzzled his antagonists. He led his army northwestwards to a point in the hills near the modern Tripolitza, and then moved a short distance along the skirts of the mountain so as to approach the right wing of the foe. He then halted and formed in battle array. The enemy were deceived by the indirect advance. Seeing him march obliquely towards the hills, they concluded that he would not attack that day, and even when he changed his direction and advanced towards them, persisted in their false opinion. Epaminondas adopted the same tactics by which he had won at Leuctra. On the left he placed the Boeotian hoplites under his own immediate command, in a deep column, destined to break through the right wing of the enemy before the rest of the armies could come to blows. The oblique advance, besides its chief purpose of deceiving the foe, had the further advantage of assisting the peculiar tactics of the general, for, when he formed his line, there was obviously a far greater distance between his right and the hostile left than that which divided his left from the hostile right. The Mantineans, since it was their territory, had the place of honour on the extremity of the enemy's right wing, and the Lacedaemonians were next them. The Athenians were on the farthest left, and both wings were protected by a squadron of horse. Epaminondas placed his own cavalry in deep column, in front of the deep column of infantry. But there was one danger against which he had to guard. 
When the Boeotian column charged, the Athenian left might wheel round and attack it on the unshielded side, a movement which could be executed owing to the distance dividing them from his own right. To meet this danger, he sent a body of horse and foot to occupy a rising ground out in the plain, considerably in advance of his line. This body could attack the Athenians in the rear if they tried such a movement. With an extraordinary lack of perception, the Lacedaemonians and their allies witnessed these manoeuvres without understanding their drift, and it was not until Epaminondas began to advance in full march against them that they realised his meaning and rushed tumultuously to arms. All fell out as he designed. His cavalry routed their cavalry, and the force of his wedge of hoplites, led by himself, broke through the opposing array and put the Lacedaemonians to flight. It is remarkable indeed how the tactical lesson of Leuctra seems to have been lost on the Spartans. The men of Achaea and Elis and the rest, when they saw the flight of the right wing, wavered before they came into collision with their own opponents. It is not quite clear what happened, but here again Mantinea seemed to repeat Leuctra. The charge of the Theban left undecided the battle. With the exception of cavalry engagements, there was but little and desultory fighting along the west of the line. It was a great Theban victory, and yet a chance determined that the victory should be the death-blow to the supremacy of Thebes. As he pursued the retreating foe, at the head of his Thebans, Epaminondas received a mortal thrust from a spear. When the news spread through the field, the pursuit was stayed and the effect of victory was undone. The troops fell back like beaten men. So striking a proof has hardly ever been rendered on the part of soldiers towards their general of devoted and absorbing sentiment. All the hopes of this army, composed of such diverse elements, were centred on Epaminondas. All their confidence of success, all their security against defeat, were derived from the idea of acting under his orders. All their power, even of striking down a defeated enemy, appeared to vanish when those orders were withdrawn, and there was no one to take his place. In his dying moments, before the point of the fatal spear was extracted, Epaminondas asked for Iolaidus and Diphantus, whom he destined as his successors. He was told that they were slain. Then, he said, make peace with the enemy. Peace was made on condition that things should remain as they were. Megalopolis and Messenia were recognised, the abiding results of Theban policy. In this peace Sparta would not acquiesce. She still persisted in refusing to recognise the independence of Messenia, but her allies would not listen to her protests. The military genius of Epaminondas, the qualities of mind and character which distinguished him among his countrymen, and the actual work which he accomplished in the deliverance of Messenia and the support of Arcadia, must not be suffered to obscure the fact that his political faculty was mediocre. What could be done by the energy and ability of a general, or by the discretion of a magistrate, that he did. But he failed to solve the fundamental problems which demanded solution at the hands of a statesman who aimed at making his country great. It was necessary to create an efficient machinery, acting on definite principles, for conducting the foreign affairs of Boeotia, like the machinery which existed at Sparta. This was the only possible substitute for brains which were not plentiful in Boeotia. Epaminondas could not hope to communicate any part of his own virtue to his successors. It was necessary to decide whether it was possible or desirable for Boeotia to enter into competition with Athens as a maritime power. If the decision were affirmative, it was of capital importance to organize the navy on a sound financial foundation. 
There is no sign that Epaminondas grappled with the problems of, of government and finance. His voyage to the Propontis was an experiment which had no results. Nor does he seem to have taken steps to secure Boeotia on the side of her dangerous Phocian neighbours, though he had the insight to organise anew the Amphictyonic League and make it an instrument of Theban policy. Above all, he did not succeed in accomplishing the first thing needful, the welding together of Boeotia into a real national unity. He aspired to expand Boeotia into an empire. The worst of it was that no one had come before him to make it into a nation. That which mythical Lycurgus and Theseus had done for Sparta and Athens had never been done for Thebes by any of her numerous heroes. Epaminondas seems to have attempted to unify Boeotia. If he had known how to build such a unity on solid foundations, he might have bestowed on Thebes a future of glory which he would not have lived to see. But his ambition for his country, not for himself, was too impatient and imaginative. The ardour of his patriotism impelled him to enter upon paths of policy which his countrymen felt no restless impulse to pursue. The successes of Thebes were achieved by his brains, not by her force. He bore his country aloft on the wings of his genius, but did not impart to her frame the principle of that soaring motion, so that when the shaft pierced the heart of her sustainer, she sank to the earth, never to rise again. Epaminondas was a great general. He was not a great statesman. Section 6. The Last Expedition of Agesilaus To no one in Greece can the supremacy of Thebes have come as a sore trial than to the Spartan king Agesilaus. He who had once dreamt of conquering Persia had lived to see his own inviolable land twice trodden by an invader, his own city quaked twice before an enemy at her doors. But he had at least the consolation of outliving the triumph of the Theban and seeing the brief supremacy pass away. The death of Epaminondas, of which he could not mistake the significance, did not restore Mestenia or give Sparta any immediate power. But Epaminondas dead and Arcadia spent, Sparta had now a prospect of regaining something of her old influence. With her own diminished population she could do little. It would be necessary to follow the general example and take mercenary forces into her pay. But to do this a well-filled treasury was needful. Accordingly we find Sparta, as well as Athens, busy beyond the sea, taking part in the troubles which in these years agitated the western portion of the Persian kingdom, and lending help to the satraps and dynasts who were rebelling against the great king. The object of Athens was territory, the object of Sparta was money. When Timotheus had been engaged in winning Samos, Agesilaus had visited Asia Minor and done his utmost in support of Ariobarzanes for the sake of gold and after the battle of Mantinea he again went forth in a guise which differed little from that of a mercenary in foreign service. The borders of Western Asia, from the Hellespont to the Nile, were in revolt against the great king. The expedition of Cyrus was only the first of a series of rebellions which troubled the reign of Artaxerxes. We have seen how Cyprus rebelled and was subjugated, but Egypt still defied the Persian power, and its success said set a bad example to the satraps of the adjoining countries. The Athenian general Cabrias had helped the Egyptians to strengthen their country by a scientific system of defences, but he was recalled to Athens after the king's peace. And the Athenian whom we next find in Egypt is fighting on the other side. The freelance Iphicrates, giving sound military advice to the Persian commander, which the Persian commander does not follow. 
Soon after this the satraps of Asia began to rebel, first in Cappadocia, then in Phrygia, then successively in Ionia, Caria, and Lydia, and the insurrection extended to Phoenicia and Syria. A scheme of cooperation was formed between the satraps and the Egyptian king Tachos, who had recently come to the throne, and Sparta decided to support this coalition. Athens held aloof, but Cabrius went once more to Egypt as a volunteer. At the head of a thousand men, and accompanied by thirty Spartans as advisers, Agesilaus set sail for the Nile. It is said that the small figure, the lame leg, and the plain dress of the experienced old soldier made a bad impression in Egypt. In any case, he was not given the supreme command of the army as he expected. When a sufficient force was gathered, Tachos, accompanied by Agesilaus and Cabrias, made an expedition to Phoenicia to act there against the Persian troops, but they were obliged to return almost immediately in consequence of a revolt against Tachos, headed by his cousin Nectanebos. The Spartan king, who considered that he had been slighted by Tachos, supported the rival, and Tachos fled to Susa and made his peace with the Persian monarch. Another competitor then arose, but was defeated by the effective support which Agesilaus gave to Nectanebos. In consequence of these struggles for the Egyptian throne, nothing was done against Persia, and the great coalition signally failed. Ariobarzanes of Phrygia, the friend of Timotheus, was betrayed and crucified. Another satrap was murdered. The rest made their submission to their king. Within a year, Western Asia was entirely subject to Artaxerxes. But Sparta had won from the futile project what she really wanted. She might shelter her dignity under the pretext that she had gone forth to punish the Persian king for recognizing the independence of Messenia, but everyone knew that her motive was to replenish her treasury. Nectanebos presented her with 230 talents in return for the support of Agesilaus. It was the last service that the old king was destined to perform for his country. Death carried him off. He was 84 years old at the harbour of Menelaus on the way to Cyrene, and his embalmed body was sent home to Sparta. Though not in any sense a great man, though not in the same rank as Lysander, Agesilaus had been for forty years a prominent figure in Greece. There is something melancholy about his career. He could remember the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War. He had seen the triumph of Sparta, and conducted her policy during a great part of thirty years of supremacy and then, as an old man, he shared in her humiliation. He had begun by dreaming of the conquest of Persia, he had been forced to abandon such dreams, and he had translated his ardour into a bitter hatred against an Hellenic city. It is tragic to see him, at the age of eighty-three, going forth against Persia once more, not now for conquest or glory, but to earn by any and every means the money needed by his indigent country. End of chapter 14, parts 4 and 5